Thanks for checking out this message. It's our final week of the One Hit Wonder series. As we move into fall, we hope that you will get connected here at The Journey. We have lots of events to join in and we really hope you will join us for our neighborhood life group. Check out our mobile app, searching The Journey Nova in your phone's app store for all the latest information and ways to stay connected. Now, here's the message. So this week, we are talking about a crazy situation in the history of Israel. Our one-hit wonder is going to take us back to a time where Israel is transitioning with a king. And we're going to hear the story about a guy with a crazy name in a crazy political situation, full of drama. And this is one of those times in the Old Testament where we see this Old Testament example of, of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so I'm excited to, to unpack this with you. But as Israel is trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we do this political transition from one king to another? Uh, there's, we can kind of draw from the coaching world on a, two principles on how to do this, maybe, all right? So kind of two philosophies on how you can hire a, a new coach and, and a new leader. The first one is this, this idea of a coach-in-waiting. Maybe you've heard this before, a coach-in-waiting. One of the most famous examples of this was at University of Texas and their football program. Mac Brown, this legendary coach, had been there forever, but their coordinator is starting to get some recognition, and people start wanting to hire him, Will Muschamp. And so Texas goes, we don't want to lose Muschamp. We want him to be our next coach. We're going to tag him with that head coach-in-waiting designation. Well, the problem was Mac Brown didn't know when he was going to retire. And so it was just kind of this undetermined amount of time. Two years later, Will Muschamp was a head coach, but it wasn't at the University of Texas. He got tired of waiting, jumped ship, went to the University of Florida, became a head coach there. Another example, maybe a little more closer to home here, West Virginia did a similar thing. They hired an offensive coordinator away from my Oklahoma State Cowboys. I'm not bitter. It's fine. Okay. Um, so they hire him for the same position, offensive coordinator for West Virginia, with also the head coach in waiting designation. And it was supposed to be two years. And after two years, and he would take over. All it took was one crazy offseason full of drama for the head coach to be like, yeah, I'm not doing this. This is nuts. He bails. Dana Holgerson is the head coach. So the head coach and waiting system can be a little tricky. It doesn't always work when you try to hire from within. Now, the other philosophy is you go outside of your organization. You, you go hire externally. You go look for a new coach to come in and have a new coaching staff. Now, when this happens, a lot of times in sports, you have your own philosophy. You have your own, your own team. You have your people that you trust and that you work with. And you want your team to come in with you to be able to run the system that you want to run. This is where a new coaching staff is probably going to clean house, right? They're probably going to get rid of some people and come and install their own people. Now, what we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 we're going to see this crazy political situation happen full of, full of drama. 
But the problem is Israel has never done this before. They've never had a king transition. They're not even really supposed to have a king. This was not God's design in how it was supposed to work. But the problem is they do both. <laughs> a head coach in waiting and a new coaching staff hired externally, all in the same system. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we jump into it, we'll outline just four main characters that we're going to find in the story. The first one is Saul, okay? He is the king of Israel right now, but he's kind of getting to the end of his tenure, and, and things aren't going super well. He's kind of this desperate, fickle king. He has these bouts of paranoia, and he lashes out, and mentally not quite stable, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird time for him to be king. The next person in our story is, is Jonathan. He's actually the son of Saul, the son of the king. However, he is loyal to the soon-to-be king. So even though he's the son, he's not tagged as the next king, but he is really good friends with the next guy in waiting, and that's David. He is the head coach in waiting. However, he's also an external hire. He's outside of this family line. So how's this going to work out? Um, he's, as a teenager, he is anointed to be the next king. And then he has his little run-in with Goliath that's, that's pretty famous. And so he comes onto the scene at that point, and Saul knows who he is. He, he plays music really well, and he kind of helps soothe Saul's mental instability. And so he's this musician in his household, but then he gets a job in the administration as well, and he's, uh, he's this military rock star for Israel and getting all kinds of fame, and he's a really big deal He's got a really big target on his back as well. The last person in our story has a very strange name. His name is Mephibosheth, all right? Let's, let's say that together. Let's start with Ma-fib-o-shet. Careful with the last one, okay? <laughs> Don't be cussing in church. So, interesting guy. He is actually the grandson of Saul. So Saul, Jonathan, Mephibosheth. He's the grandson of him. He's mentioned briefly in the text as we're kind of talking about all the drama that's going on. The text inserts him and, and tells this little backstory like, oh yeah, there is this other son. We'll, we'll unpack his story here in a minute. But the way the text does it, it's like when a professor goes, you might want to write this down, right? You ever had that happen? This might be on the test. This might come into play a little later. That's how the text brings up Mephibosheth. Okay, it's like, huh, that was weird. That was out of place. Let's file that away for later. So we'll talk about him in a minute. But what happens is Saul and Jonathan both die in battle at the same time. So the king is gone. Now, David has been anointed king, but there's actually another son in the line of Saul that, that ends up taking reign more so in the north. They kind of identify him as the king. We almost had this north-south split that happens. Eventually it will happen long term, but 
in the north, there's another king. In the south, they're like, yeah, David's the guy. He was anointed. He's, he's the one. That's where we're headed. It's like conference realignment with the SEC right now, if you're following that at all. There's lots of backstabbing that's happening. There's lots of drama. It's like Game of Thrones type drama as well. Like, it's just ugly and weird. And so the, the, the text lays out all of this that's happening. But eventually, David becomes king of all Israel. So he's now the king. He steps in. It's time for him to get to work. So he comes in, and first step is foreign policy. So let's, let's work on foreign policy. The Philistines come. They attack Israel. And so what does David do? This is really cool. He doesn't just, remember, he's a military hero, right? He doesn't just go and get him. He stops and he inquires of the Lord about what he should do. Uh, that'll, that'll preach right there, all right? We could do a whole sermon just on how he responds right there versus other times in his life. But in the, the military conquest, he's, he's, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And he goes and he takes care of the Philistines. Foreign policy, check. All right. Next up, religious education. David does some really great things to, to bring Yahweh, God, a back front and center to Israel. He, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. That's where he dances and gets a little wild and crazy. He does things like talk to God about building a temple and starts to set up plans and motion for that to happen. He brings God front and center. Religious education, check. All right. Next up, he moves to national security. And this is where he starts looking for people involved in the previous administration. He starts gathering people together. Hey, let's name some names. Who, who was loyal to Saul? Who was in that administration? I need to talk to him, right? We kind of know what this means. This is ex exactly what's happening in Afghanistan right now. It's not good news. And so, David starts asking and inquiring, hey, is there anyone from Saul's administration that can come in and, and talk? And there's this servant named Ziba. He, is, he was like the chief of staff to Saul. And so he comes and he bows before the king and he says, king, I'm, I'm at your service. Now, if you take the Hebrew of what he says right there, at your service, that means don't kill me. He's like, I need a job. Please don't kill me. All right, that's not really what it means in the Hebrew, but he is scared. He knows what this is all about. He knows that when a new coaching staff comes in, they clean house. He knows that it's common that people will come in and you want to solidify your grip to the kingdom. You want to make sure that everyone is, that's there is loyal to you. And so he's scared. And so David asks a question. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Hmm, that's a little weird. Not really how I pictured this conversation going. But Ziba says, well, yes, there, there is someone still alive in the house of Saul. Um, he, there's still a son of Jonathan. He, he's, he's still there. He's lame in both feet. And so David asks, where is he? And he says he's in this place called Lodabar. This is where we find out about Mephibosheth. I, I want us, as we go through this this morning, I, 
I want you to find one aspect of his character, of his life, of his story that you can identify with. Just pick out one of these things as we go through, we start to understand who he was, that you could go, yeah, okay, that, that's me. That's the one that I need to grab a hold of, all right? So we're going to learn more about who he is in the midst of all this political drama that's going on, this political transition. David's now the new king. Who is this guy, Mephibosheth? First off, we see that he is a victim of circumstance. Uh, when the text adds in this little side note about him, it says in 2 Samuel 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So he's a five-year-old baby boy. They find out that his dad, Jonathan, and his granddad, Saul, the king, have both died in battle. So what does his nurse do? She picks him up and she flees. Why? Because she knows that he's in trouble. She knows that a new administration is going to come and clean house. So she runs, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. And we find out his name was Mephibosheth. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a, in a terrible accident, just a victim of circumstances. And that's where we do have to admit, this is the biggest thing that people struggle with when it comes to faith. How could God allow things like this to happen? We live in a fallen world. And, and sometimes, because we live in a fallen world, bad things just happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that God made it happen or wanted it to happen. It just happened. He's a victim of circumstance. Is, is that you? Maybe you've been dealt a bad hand in life. Maybe growing up for you was really rough. Maybe you grew up with just one parent in the household or maybe no parents at all and someone else had to raise you. Maybe your medical history, your medical journey is just so unlike anyone else's. No one would really understand the things that you have to do, the struggles you have to go through. It's just unique. No one would fully understand. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's just, it's just what it is. And if that's you this morning, I just want to ask the question, what do you need to embrace? What do you need to embrace? That maybe it, there's not blame to go around. There, there's not shame that needs to go around. It's not your fault, and it doesn't do any good to carry anger or guilt or frustration. It's just part of your story. It's just part of how you have to live now. That God's not punishing you. That he didn't want this to happen. People can say all kinds of unhelpful things when bad things happen, right? All kinds of things that are super contrary to, to Scripture. But here's what Scripture does say about bad things. It says God can work in all things for the good of those who love him. God can take any situation and work good out of it. That's the truth that we can hold on to. What do we need to embrace? The next thing we know about Mephibosheth is that he learned to hide. 
At age five, when his dad and granddad, the king, died, he had to run. He had to take off. He feared for his life, and he was on the go. Where does he go? To this place called Lodabar. Now, now seriously, the Hebrew in here means, means nothing, like no, no word or no communication. Like there's, there's no messages, there's no communication that comes out of this place. Or it, it means no pasture. Like there's nothing there, nothing grows, it's desolate. This is literally the middle of nowhere. And you get the sense that his identity becomes this. That his identity becomes this nothing from nowhere. It's almost like he embraces it. He believes it. He's learned to hide. He's, he's learned that this is just who he is and what his lot in life looks like. We'll, we'll learn more about that in a second. But for us, what do, we, what do we hide from? Do you maybe bury yourself in work to avoid your problems? Is it, is it an alcohol that, that we, we drink to forget? Is it like I don't want to think about or deal with the things in my life? It's just a whole lot easier to just get high and just, just forget about it. Is that how we escape? Is that how we choose to not deal with things in life? To just run and to hide? What are we hiding from? This last year and a half has been hard for a lot of people. This pandemic has caused us to be isolated. It's caused us to be alone in many regards. We can't meet face-to-face like we want to or like we normally would. We can't have those contacts. And, And so what's happened? Alcohol use is up. Drug use is up. Anxiety is up. Depression's up. Emotionally, anxiety, it's been hard the last year and a half. And that's why this fall, life groups are so important for what we want to do. We want to get you in connection. We want you to make some new friendships and some people that you can do life with together. Because we're not designed to be isolated. We're not designed to do this on our own. We are better together. And this fall kickoff party that's happening in two weeks, it's going to be so important because we're actually going to seat you at a table based on on neighborhoods. You're going to get to meet people that live nearby you and the opportunity to make some new friends. And yeah, you'll get to meet people who are starting a life group or who may be hosting a life group. You can learn more about what that is like. And then we're just asking people eight weeks this fall. If you can commit to eight sessions for a life group, that's it. That's all. That's all that we're asking. Eight sessions to get in the Word, to get into community, to make some new friendships. It's going to be so important because we are not designed to hide. Mephibosheth, he hid. The other thing, we find out he was defined by his mistakes. He was defined by his mistakes. Um, This accident that happened to him at age five, at age 12, when his uncle, who ruled the northern kingdom, when when he passed away, he's never even considered for the line of secession. 
He's never even considered that maybe he would be the king. His physical deformity excluded him from being both a priest and the leader of the nation. And this thing, this one thing about him defined his whole self and his whole identity. What mistakes have you allowed to define your life? What tape plays over and over in your mind? The, the regret that you carry? That, that night that it went too far, that you crossed the line, that the thing that you swore you would never do again that actually happened? What are those regrets that you have? That thing has turned into who you are and what you do and how you, how you see yourself. Can you allow yourself to be forgiven? Can you forgive yourself? Because what we can't do is we can't believe the lie. We can't believe the past. When, when he is actually before King David... This is what he says. This is how he talks about himself. He, he bows down and says, Who is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, at this point in history, dogs are not man's best friend, all right? It, it is not the cute, crossbred, hypoallergenic, you know, puppy little breath that we carry around in a purse, okay? That's, that's not the image of dog here, okay? First off, a dog is an unclean animal, for, for the Jews. And, and second, when you add in all of these different factors about, um, you know, what they did, what they ate, the unclean animal that ate unclean things, it's like a raccoon digging around in the trash, okay? It, it is, they were scavengers and wild dogs. Think of like a hyena, okay? That, that's the mental image of, of a dog here. They are not cute, cuzzy, cuddly, fuzzy animals, at least at this point. We love them now. We love our dogs. But Mephibosheth, he takes on this identity. He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He embraces this aspect of this worthlessness of him. He, he embraces the negative self-talk that he's heard in his life. Think about how important um, positivity is in, in sports. Sports psychology and the power that there is in visualizing yourself succeeding and doing well. This is the exact opposite, right? He is taking on all of the negativity and he's saying that this is true about who he is. Here's what happens, especially in, in, in prayer, in the prayer world. Uh, if someone says to you, uh, you're, you're so dumb, okay? Someone says, you're so dumb. And you go, yeah, you're right, okay? We call that agreement. That, that you're agreeing and you're forming a bond with this negative identity, this thing that's false and that's not true about you. And, and you're saying, yeah, I agree with you. I'm solidifying that in in your heart and in your character. That's not okay, right? But what if we take it a step further from aggrievement and, and we start to say things like, I'm so dumb, all right? So we start to internalize and verbalize this 
negative and bad identity. That's called a self-curse. These are things that we have to be so careful with that we don't curse ourselves in this way, that we don't believe and, and speak this out into the world. And then we can even take that a step further, and, and we can create an, what's called an inner vow, where we say things like, I'll never do well in school. I could, I'll never be able to do this. I'm, I'm never, never be smart enough to go, to go to college. I'll never get to that point. So we're creating these vows and these ties in our spirit to things that are not true of Scripture. As a parent, we have to be so careful about the things that we say to our kids. Are we saying things that are true? Am I saying that you are bad, or am I saying you made a bad decision? There's such a fine line in that. But we have to be careful that we don't speak this negative truth over our kids. There's an imaginative prayer experience that you can do. I would highly recommend tonight, tomorrow morning, whatever, wake up, get a piece of paper, and I want you to journal this. I want you to picture you looking at God. Like God the Father, you're sitting face to face across from Him. God's looking back at you. You guys are looking into each other's eyes. And I want you to journal about what that experience is like. What tone does he have with you? What's his attitude like? What's the feeling and the sense you get in his eyes? Because if it's disappointment, if it's frustration, if it's anger, we might need to check ourselves on how we see our attitude with God. You might need to check that with just Google search identity in Christ. Start to look at scriptures to see what God says about us, that, that he knew us in our mother's womb, that he knitted us together, that he created us, that he has put us on a path of righteousness, that he, has, um, he is for us and he's given us a new life and that we are citizens in heaven. And all of these things about what God says who we are and how we're to live, that we are new creations, that we are a friend of God. Now go back to that image of the two of you looking at each other. God, I hope, I hope God's smiling. I, I, I hope that he has tears in his eyes of how much love and how intent he cares about you. I hope that that impression is correct in your mind that you see yourself the right way, that you see your identity correctly in Christ. This week's Bible reading plan is, is all about identity in Christ. Let's get that straight. How does God see you? Mephibosheth believed the lie. He believed that he was worthless, that he had no purpose. He believed that he was a dead dog. And here he is, kneeling, bowing before the king, saying, at your service. Translation, please don't kill me. What does David do? Does he clean house? Does he eliminate the threat to his throne? 
How does he respond? The first thing he does is David honors the covenant. He says, don't be afraid, for surely I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He remembers this covenant that he made with Jonathan, where together the two of them made this commitment, this covenant. It's like a promise, but it's a vow. It's, it's bigger than that. Covenant, this churchy word, is the best thing that we have to describe this, where they made this covenant where they said, we will take care of each other's families. Kindness will never depart from our families. And in this moment, when David is the king, and his best friend's son is laying there before him, who might have a, a claim to the throne, he says, no, 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 kindness. I'm going to remember my covenant. That's what's important. This morning, do you believe that God is good? Can you believe that God doesn't want to harm you, that he wants to love you, that he wants to forgive you? Do you believe the fact that you can be forgiven? Romans 10 tells us, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that, you, that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Can we hold on to those promises? Can you believe that? David honors his commitment, but he also restores his identity. This is in the conversation. This is where we see him use that dead dog comment, and, and David wants nothing to do with it. He skips right over it. He ignores the fact that he says it. And so what does he do? He says, I've given, he, he says to Ziba, he pulls Ziba in, he says, hey, listen, Ziba, servant of Saul, I'm giving everything that was Saul's, I'm giving it to this kid right here. I'm giving it to my friend's son. I'm restoring this back to him. And so now he has land, and Ziba's sons are going to work the land, and now he, he can be provided for, and he's going to have food, and he's going to eat at the master's table. He restores his identity. He brings him back into the royal family. He's no longer exiled to the middle of nowhere. He provides for him. He provides land. He provides servant. And, and if, if I have the math right, Ziba has uh, 15 sons and 20 servants. And when you add all that together, when you add in Ziba and you add in, um, when you add in Mephibosheth, that's 37 people that are restored to a place of honor. 37 people that are brought back into the kingdom and to this palace because David honors his commitment and he restores his identity. We're going to have an opportunity in a couple weeks where we're going to do baptisms. And you're going to have the opportunity to take on that new identity, to stand before people and say, yeah, that's what I believe. That just like Jesus, I'm going to go under the water. I'm going to, I'm going to be dead. The old life is gone. It is no longer anymore. I'm going to come up and I'm going to be a new person, a new creation, raised to new life. This is who I am. You have the opportunity to declare that in front of people, that your identity is in Christ, forgiven and free. The last thing that David does 
he adopts into his family. It says that, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then at the bottom of that section it says, he lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. He invites him to eat at the table. He treats him like the king's own son. He restores him into a family. He adopts us into the family. You see how this is a picture of what Jesus does for us? And, and I love this, this picture here at the end. It, it, you know, it talks about him eating at the king's table, and then it reminds us once again about this really interesting fact about his life. Oh yeah, and remember, he was lame in both feet. Why does it do that? Why does it need to bring that up again? I thought we had restored this, this whole identity thing. When you're seated at the table, what do you not notice? When you're pulled up to the table, at the king's banquet table, what do you not notice? You don't notice the feet. And so as he sits there, a member of the royal family, fully restored, enjoying this banquet, being provided for, he is a new person. He is completely different. One of the best examples that we have of heaven is this idea of a, a king throwing a banquet. In Luke 14, it talks about the owner saying, hey, go out into the streets, go into the town, go find the poor and find the crippled and find the lame and invite them into this party. And his servants say, sir, we've done that. We've gone out. We've, we've invited everyone, but there's still room. And so the king says, go into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. There's room at God's table. There's room to enjoy life with the king. And as we sit there in heaven one day with every tongue and tribe and nation, you know what we won't see? We won't see our deficiencies. We won't see the regrets. We won't see the past. Because we're going to be fully healed and fully restored. Because we will be at the table of the king. We will be sitting there as sons and daughters of the king. Amen?